0: So, this week we took a break. Last week we paused the series. We came to kind of a natural pause in the text as we're going through 2 Corinthians. And so, last week we looked at a name of God. The Bible calls us to worship God by name, to know God by name. So, last week we looked at Elohim Emet, Yahweh Elohim, uh, just Elohim, God of truth. And we looked at this beautiful, foundational, life defining reality that God is truth. He is he is the nature, the definition of truth. And that should drive our lives. That should give us encouragement. That should give us hope. That should give us joy and peace. Uh, it should also give us conviction and courage. And so now we are jumping back into 2 Corinthians. We are going to be in 2 Corinthians 6, the second half of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, into the first verse of chapter 7. We've put that chapter break in there, but when you're looking at the text the idea really flows into the very start of that next section. Um, a lot of weeks we start with scripture and then we pray. This week we're gonna start with prayer. There are some verses in this chunk of 2 Corinthians that are admittedly sometimes a little tough for us to wrap our minds around and for us to, to get our sensibilities in line with what God says. Uh, And and so we're going to pray before we dive into this, because we want to make sure that we're approaching this with a a spirit of submission, a a spirit of recognizing that God is the authority, not what our common sense might tell us. And so just desiring to come under his word and listen to it with ears opened by him, listen to it with a heart softened by him. So if you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are we thank you that you are worthy 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 we thank you that you are holy 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 it is our undeniable privilege to shout that out it is a a gift to us to be able to use vocal cords and declare that and we are just so joyful in that and coming before you on your throne because of your mercy, because of your grace, and getting the opportunity with brothers and sisters to cry out that you are holy and you are worthy of our praise. And so now as we continue to praise you with our minds, as we continue to praise you with our ears, may this be praiseworthy of you. Make this a sacrifice that is pleasing to you. Lord, may nothing that is said come from me. Uh, Remove me entirely from this process. May we listen in tune with who you are and in step with the Holy Spirit. May we continue to praise you in this time. We recognize that you and you alone are God, and we are delighted to be in your presence and to be under your leadership, under your authority, under your kingship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you all would, if you're able, please stand out of, out of respect for God's word, uh, out of respect for Jesus speaking to us through his word. This is 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You may be seated. So in this, in this passage, you know, we said at the very start of this series on 2 Corinthians, we're seeing, we're seeing themes throughout this letter on our eternal identity. Who God says we are. The world's going to try and tell us who we are. Our friends are going to try and tell us who we are. Our job's going to try and tell us who we are. But we have to know who God says we are eternally. And then knowing our eternal identity directly informs our eternal role. The task that God has given to us, the responsibilities God has given to us as his people, as his church, as his bride, that resonate in eternity. And then knowing our eternal identity, knowing our eternal role, that helps us figure out the smallest piece of the puzzle, our earthly role. And we've talked about how we tend to make that temporary earthly role the big main focus, like that outweighs eternity. But knowing our eternal identity, knowing our eternal role, directly then shapes how we approach our earthly roles. Our roles as employees, our roles as employers, our roles as husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, brothers, cousins, friends, neighbors third removed, I don't know, like whatever we do in this lifetime, knowing our eternal identity and knowing our eternal role directly impacts our earthly calling. And this passage in 2 Corinthians, while containing verses that at first glance may be tough for us to wrap our minds around, really speaks directly to our eternal calling and our eternal role. And so let's start with read the Bible for its plain and obvious meaning. Don't make it overcomplicated. Don't try and add tricks to it. What's it say? It says, don't be hitched unequally. And it means, don't be hitched unequally. Do not be intentionally, willfully united with that which is not the same. This is a principle that began in the Old Testament as God called his people to be in the midst of Nations, tribes, groups that worshipped other gods that had nothing to do with the true God. His people are in the midst of them. And from the beginning, God lays out these principles of sanctification. That word that means to be set apart for holiness. So in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 22, he's saying these principles of don't be unequally yoked. You don't hitch up. What is one thing with something that is entirely different in purpose, in intent, in essence of being? This isn't the call on God's people. And we have to ask, why? Is this just an arbitrary, you know, hey, let's pull something out of a hat? No, not at all. God doesn't do that. God is intentional. God is deliberate. God is always going to do that which brings glory to Jesus and which makes us more like Jesus. God is always going to do and lay out that which is for our best, for our protection, for our holiness, and His glory and the advancement of His kingdom and His mission. So if we have this call to not be unequally yoked, we have to keep in mind that it is in light of the call on our lives to be yoked to Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this command to not be yoked unequally is because we are commanded to be yoked to Christ yoked, that old-school word that's referring to what you would put two farm animals together. So, I mean, really think about this. Why is this such a big deal? Why do we need to read this for its very plain and obvious meaning? Because who you are yoked to will undeniably influence the direction you go in. Who you are yoked to, who you choose willful partnership with, undeniably has an impact on your life. If I took two of you and I linked you by the neck and said, hey, you go that way and you go this way, is that possible? Maybe if one person's stronger than the other, but now what's happening, the stronger one is dragging the weaker one away from the direction they're trying to move in. What if I yoked you together and I said, okay, you go this way and you go that way just a little bit, pretty close, but the further you get, the further away it's going to be if you're not moving in the same direction, if you're not desiring the same things, if your life purpose is not the same, you can't deny the influence that that unequal yoking is going to have, whether it's a hindrance, whether it's a dragging along, whether it's an obstacle, whether it's a preventiveness. So if you have two people, and one of them has said, Jesus is Lord, I submit everything to Him, everything I own is his, everything I have in my bank account is his, my house is his, my life is his, this is my priority. And you have someone who says, okay, that's great, but that's just not true for me. They're not not desiring the same things. They're not coming under the same recognition of truth. They don't have the same definition of truth. And so it's plain and obvious meaning. We cannot overlook that God calls us to be yoked to Christ, not yoked unequally. All right, cool, I can tune out this week. I'm married to a believer, I'm single, I'm 17. Like, sweet, this, this week Sam can just talk to other people and I'll, I'll see you next week. No, because if there's a plain and obvious meaning, we have to realize there is also a timeless biblical truth. I mean, there's a reason why this isn't just an Old Testament thing. There's a reason why this is Old Testament, New Testament, constantly throughout scripture. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, how is this relevant? all of us today when we look at the principle. We said those Old Testament laws, this New Testament command is about sanctification and all of us are called to be sanctified. All of us are called to be set apart. So when we consider this idea of yoking, we have to be able to recognize that what we choose to to unite ourselves with, what we choose to partner with, what we choose to allow to have influence in our lives matters. Finish this. Break me off a piece of that. What would you do, for ai am going to go out on a limb and say maybe just one of you actually had a Kit Kat bar and a Klondike bar for breakfast this morning. But all of you, or at least most of you, knew how to finish that sentence. Why? Because you've heard it. You've heard it over and over again. It's been repeated throughout your life. And what has it done? It has worked its way into your subconscious. And so then when the trigger happens, you know the response. So we cannot deny that what we listen to, we cannot deny that what we read, we cannot deny that what we watch, we cannot deny that who we hang out with, all of this affects the way we think. All of this affects our subconscious perception in response to life around us. My dad will tell you of a time where he realized he had a long commute, and he realized he was driving more and more aggressively and he was getting angrier and angrier on the road. And he started asking, okay, why, why am I changing? Why is my approach to driving changing so drastically? And he realized the only movies I'm watching are an hour and a half of how many different ways can we try and blow somebody up or beat them up. And it sounds silly. Right? It sounds like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that kind of movie. But he had learned that in situations that are stressful, like he was consuming anger. He was consuming violence. He was consuming direct confrontation in the most aggressive way possible. So now when he receives a trigger in his own life, that's maybe not international hitmen breaking in, but it's a driver cutting him off, he has learned to respond with aggressiveness. And so he had to say, wow, you know what? I, I think I need to be a lot more careful about what I'm consuming. I think I need to be a lot more careful about what I'm allowing my mind to be yoked with. And if we are tempted to write this off, if we are tempted to say, come on, this is trivial stuff, I can watch whatever I want, I can listen to whatever I want, I can consume whatever I want, I can hang out with whoever I want, ask, is it maybe because we're realizing that we've allowed these things to influence our perception and our approach to life and we don't want to give up what we like doing? We don't wanna give up our favorite band. We don't wanna give up our favorite TV show. We don't want to stop going to a certain, like we have to realize that all of us every day choose things to be yoked to. Every day we make conscious decisions of what we will unite with, of what we will partner with, of what we will allow to have a place of influence and direction in our lives. What's he say in this passage? Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. He says, what accord, what peace, what friendship, what relationship, what accord does Christ have with Belial? This is a name of Satan that only appears once in the Bible, in this verse. We get this name from a Hebrew word that means worthlessness. In this word, in this name, it doesn't just stop at worthlessness. It actually means worthlessness that leads to ruin. So not only is this not helpful... It's not neutral, right? Like, well, it's not helpful, but it's not really hurting me. It's, it's just kind of neutral. It's this gray thing in the middle. No, Belial, this word, this name means worthlessness that actually leads to ruination of things, to destruction of things. It only appears as a name once, but this word, this Hebrew word, appears numerous times throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 13, 13. Certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, "Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known." Deuteronomy 15:9: take care lest there be an unworthy thought, a worthless thought, in your heart, and you say, "The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin." What in the world is that verse talking about? I understood half of those ideas. We have to understand context. Context is 15.1. So earlier in the chapter, God is commanding his people how to interact with one another. In this section of Deuteronomy, God is laying out, here are the principles that you as my children engage with one another in. This is how you treat one another. And in verse uh, 1, he says, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has done to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. It was a forgiveness of debts. It was a, hey, you borrowed this from me. Hey, you borrowed this land from me. You borrowed this money from me. You bar- like Hey, you, I gave you something. In the seventh year, slate's wiped clean. Debts are gone. They're canceled. So you now go to verse 19, and God commanding his people says, don't let this year of release cause you to have a worthless and unworthy thought of, oh, shoot, I'm not going to lend him anything, because in three months he's going to get clear to that debt. So I won't get that back. I won't get repaid, because we're close enough to that year of release. God says that's an unworthy thought. That's a worthless thought that leads to what? A ruination of generosity, a ruination of brotherhood, a ruination of familial responsibility because that worthless thought of, yeah, but I'm not going to get mine back has ruined this, has poisoned this, what I've commanded of you. First Kings twenty one thirteen, and two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, him being Naboth. We'll meet him in a second. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. What's the context of this? There's a king named Ahab. We looked at him last week. Ahab was no great friend of the truth. Ahab had nothing to do with godliness. So we've got King Naboth, Or Ahab. Now Naboth. Man, these guys need different names. We've got Ahab, and then we've got Naboth. Naboth has a great vineyard. Naboth has a great piece of property. Ahab says, I want that. Naboth says, no, it's my family's right. It was given to us by God. I'm not just going to give up my family's birthright just because you want it. So Ahab and his wife Jezebel hire who? Two worthless men to lie about him. And they bring a charge of blasphemy against Naboth. So then the the people are like, whoa, I mean, if this guy blasphemed, right, if this guy sinned against God in such an egregious manner, the justice, the response, the the system dictates stoning. So Naboth gets killed. What do we think Ahab does? Oh, hey, if nobody owns that uh, property now, sweet, that's mine. So in this case, worthlessness, Belial, this idea, what we are called not to be because we are in unity with Christ, so we can have no partnership with worthlessness, it leads to a ruination of integrity. It leads to a ruination, a destruction of truth that leads to a ruination, a destruction of lives. This is not a small concept. I mean, 1 Samuel 2, you see that this word leads to family ruin and destruction. 1 Samuel 25, it leads to personal ruin. 1 Samuel 30, it leads to selfishness and arrogance. 2 Samuel 20, it leads to a rejection of God-ordained authority. 2 Samuel 23, it leads to literal pain. Psalm 18, it leads to destruction. Uh, Proverbs 6 and 16, this word, this idea, it leads to deceit. It leads to falsehood. It leads to, to lying speech. Time and time again, God uses this word to show his people, hey, what you choose to partner with affects you. And when you choose to partner with worthlessness, when you choose to partner with things that are worthless, that are unworthy, it ruins, it destroys. Nahum, Nahum one eleven, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. So this is a big deal, what we as God's people choose to allow to have influence in our lives, choose to partner with, because ultimately these are things that are unworthy of the Lord. These are things that are worthless in light of God's holiness, in light of who He has called us to be and commanded us to be. So this idea of what have we allowed to have prominence in our lives, what have we allowed to have positions of influence in our lives, it ultimately leads to... How do we engage with God? How do we engage with a holy Lord who has called us to be sanctified, to be set apart? So we can't say, well, I'm married to a Christian, I'm single, Like we can't say, hey, this doesn't apply to me. No, because the principle that he is getting at is sanctification, and that is the call on every Christian's life to be set apart for holiness, to be yoked to Jesus. And if we are yoked to jesus we cannot allow ourselves to be yoked to inextricably tied to things that are not going to move in the same direction as christ it's unavoidable as he continues in this passage he shows us why he shows us why this ought to be such a big deal in our lives he lays out why this is so vital And it's is—it's one of the most mind-blowing passages in the Bible. It is so cool. What does he say? He says, What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He uses a very specific word there as led by the Holy Spirit. He uses a word that means the most holy place. There was a Greek word referring to just the temple property, the temple building, the temple grounds, Hereon. That is not the word he uses. He uses the word that is referring to the holy of holies, the most holy place. What do we know about the most holy place, the holy of holies from the Old Testament? That this is where God dwelt among his people. This is where the mercy seat was. This is where God came down to be present with his people and speak with them and lead them and judge them. This was God's tabernacling among his people. And so what he is getting at here is our eternal identity, this unbelievable, mind-blowing truth of the new covenant. That believers are indwelt by God through the Holy Spirit. This privilege afforded to those who are new in Christ, raised to newness of life, a new creation, that we are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. Listen to these verses, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Ephesians 2, 20 and 22, You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit if the enemy tries to tell you you're worthless if society tries to tell you you have no value if those lies start to creep in that you're nothing of significance all you have to do is recall that god the lord of the universe says you are my dwelling place you are my temple does your home have any value to you If I came over with a sledgehammer and just started smashing stuff, holes in the walls, light fixtures, plumbing, who's going to sit by and be like, yeah, cool, this structure means nothing? No, I'm going to bet that you're going to stop me. right? Why? Because your home, your dwelling place matters to you. It's important to you. You have invested in it. You chose it. God says, you are my dwelling place. So when the enemy says you're worthless, you say, no, 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 God chose me as his dwelling place. When when the enemy says you have nothing to offer, you bring no value, you're meaningless, you're insignificant, you say, no, no, I am God's dwelling place. He chose me for this. He assembles me for this. He is deliberate in this. See, we individually, what do those two verses say, 1 Corinthians 3.16? You are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. You and I individually as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are individually God's temple, His dwelling place. And then what's it say in Ephesians 2? It says we are being assembled into God's dwelling place, into His temple. So this is both an individual and a corporate privilege. This is both an individual and a corporate joy. And this is why both individually and corporately, as the local church, as this beautiful, incredible, eternal organism that we call the local church that could only come from God, it matters who and what we choose to be yoked with. It matters individually. It matters jointly. Because you and I and we are God's temple. This is our eternal identity. This is unshakable This is ordained by God, written in His Word to be told to us, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is who He says we are. We can never lose sight of this. We can never allow the world to convince us otherwise, to distract us from this. And this should fill us with a reverence for what He has called that temple to be. As He goes on in the passage, what's He say? He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living Lord, or the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he says, therefore, we've talked about therefore, okay, based on everything that was just said, here are now undeniable conclusions to that. So based on we are the temple of the Lord called to be sanctified, called to be set apart, called to not be unequally yoked, called to be yoked to Christ and not allow these worthless things to have positions of influence in our lives, he says, therefore, go out from their midst. There's a typo on there. It should be three commands and two or three promises, depending on how you want to break it up. So he says, therefore, and we see three commands, and then we see three subsequent promises. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Talk about a privilege. I mean, that's cool. Come on. Really? God Almighty says, you shall be my sons and daughters. I choose you. That's a promise of just peace and joy and honor and blessing. It's tied to the commands of go out, be separate, touch no unclean thing. This is not New Testament. This is not just Old Testament. This is Bible start to finish. God's words start to finish. Isaiah fifty two eleven, Depart. God speaking to his people. He says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, the land around them. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Ezekiel 20, verse 41. God is speaking to His people and He says, As a pleasing aroma I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest My holiness among you in the sight of the nations. Listen to Isaiah 43, starting in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Hard day? Bad day? Stuff going wrong? The doubt starting to creep in? The enemy starting to gain traction in your mind? Remember Isaiah 43. God says, I give things in ransom for you. I choose you. Why? You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Choose to not be afraid. Choose to not be mentally, emotionally yoked with the things that cause us fear. Make the decision to be sanctified, because it is what God has called us to be. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God, who formed and made us who created us for His glory, does He not then have the right to say, this is your standard? This is your calling? I am He who formed you. I am He who made you. I am He who created you for my glory. I am He who ransoms people for you, who chose you, who loves you. This is what I'm calling you to. It is His right. And when we say Jesus is Lord, we are declaring, you have that right and I submit to it. So this is an unavoidable conclusion for the Christian. Mark 3, 34 and 35, And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Do you realize that? When you choose to do the will of God, Jesus is saying, Brother, sister, Family. I would say a lot of us have experienced family relationships that aren't great. That aren't what we would like them to be. Maybe for some of us, family, the idea of family actually causes pain. As we think about family, as we think about family relationships that are gone, that are missing, that are never what we wanted them to be. We wish we would have had a father who loved us. We wish we would have had a mother who was present. We wish we would have had brothers or sisters who cared about us. We wish we would have had these things. Friends, for the believer, for those who choose to do the will of God, Jesus looks at you and he says, brother, sister. That's awesome. That is part and parcel of this. You cannot separate this. If you cannot separate the call on sanctification from the Christian's life, you also can't separate that Jesus looks at the Christian and says, this is my family whom I choose. That's cool. That is great, great news. And so therefore, go out. Be separate. Do not be unequally yoked. And once he continue with all of it, as we talk about our eternal identity, as we talk about our eternal calling... How does that influence, how does that directly shape our earthly calling, our earthly approach to life? So he says, after all of this, he gives three commands, he gives three promises, and then he says, chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. We are to be holy. Holy. We've talked about this numerous times. There is no aspect of our lives, there is no aspect of our existence that sin does not mar, that sin does not destroy, that sin does not affect. We are affected mentally, we are affected emotionally, we are affected physically, we are affected spiritually. So therefore, when God says, my will is your sanctification, it is also an entire, complete, holistic sanctification. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, set apart for God pursuing this. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this is God's will. Numerous passages say this is your calling to pursue sanctification. 2 Peter, make every effort to add these things in increasing measure. I mean, the Bible throughout is clear that this is not a pick and choose what's easy, what comes natural. This is a all. This is a everything. Fear of the Lord means reverent obedience. So the call on the Christian's life is to pursue this, to make every effort to bring our holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, in reverent obedience to the Lord. Listen to these passages. This is Psalm 101, verses 1-4. to I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Consider Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's not some theoretical command. Like, that part of the Bible is not like, a, oh, that's nice in theory. That's nice in principle. Oh, gee, isn't that swell? That's a literal. Think about this stuff. Give your mind to sanctification. If this is a holy, if this is a commendable, if this is a true and honorable, a just, a pure, a lovely, an excellent, a praiseworthy thought process, go down it. If this is not, then don't. We're going to talk about something, and I'm not, we're not, I'm not getting a soapbox out. I'm not saying you're a bad Christian if you have social media. I just want to talk to you about a survey, a study that was done by Oxford University about five years ago. Oxford University surveyed social media users with a simple question. Are you in a better mood when you get off social media than you were before? Almost 90% say, no, I'm I'm in a worse mood. I'm in a worse mood when I get off social media than before I went on. Then they asked, if you said that, they asked a follow-up question. Okay, do you know that this is going to be the case? So of that 90%, yeah, again, 90% were like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know that when I go on social media, it's going to put me in a worse mood. And then they asked a third follow-up question. Okay, so you're in a worse mood when you finish engaging with this. You know that going into it, so are you going to quit social media? Over 90% were like, nah. Friends, we... Take personal responsibility, take ownership. Uh Uh-oh, maybe your favorite news show doesn't help you think about what is truth and honor and commendable and praiseworthy and excellent. Maybe your favorite podcast that you listen to on your drive into work, maybe it's not helping you think in a holy way. So you show up to work and you're already all amped up and you're like, oh, I just wanna yell at somebody. Maybe you and I need to start taking personal ownership to actually be serious about our mental sanctification what we watch, what we listen to, what we choose to have position of influence and pull in our lives, what I allow to be yoked around my neck, around my heart, around my thoughts? Maybe I need to start being serious about, hey, am I allowing myself, am I choosing to be unequally yoked with things that are not going to cause me to think, to act, to behave in a holy manner? Colossians 3, 1-2, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We've talked about this word seek numerous times. This is not a like, you know, where's Waldo? Maybe I'll find it, maybe I won't. Seek is is the idea of a hunter tracking down his prey. Seek is the idea of I know what I'm trying to get to, so I will take deliberate action to go get it. So ask yourself, are you in your behavior, in your decision, in your consumption, in your focus, in your eyes, in your mind, in your heart? Are you actively taking steps to seek the things that are holy and above and of God? Sanctification is all of us. It's every part of our lives must be given to this. Why? Because we are the temple of God and what Accord does the temple of God have with idols? The answer is none. What business does righteousness have with darkness? The answer is none. There is no partnership. Righteousness should engage with it to be, push back the darkness, right? Jesus says, this is my church. The gates of hell won't stand against us. I'm not talking about Christian isolationism. I'm not talking about like, well, that's why I don't talk to anybody who's not a believer. I had somebody tell me that one time. We were in a a Bible study uh, where I used to live, and we were talking about this, and they were like, no, I couldn't agree more. That's why I don't have any friends who aren't believers. And I said, cool, who are you evangelizing? Uh, right? So this isn't like a, no, you can't have friends who aren't Christians. You can't work for a company that's not Christian. You have to just be, you know, this is not my pitch to, hey, Community Bible Church, let's go buy a plot in the desert and just hang out with each other, like, No, Christians should be present in their communities. Christians should be present in their workplaces, but we should not be choosing yoking with. We should not be choosing deliberate, willful, I allow you to have influence in my life. Why? Because I am the temple of the living God, and I have no business with darkness. And you have no business with darkness. We are called the sanctification. And until the church takes ownership of our part in this, we will continue to miss out on what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be. And so it's a beautiful thing. It's not an overwhelming thing. It's not a terrible, fearful thing. It's a privilege. It's a, man, God has chosen me. He has called me his brother. He has called me his sister. He has saved me, has redeemed me. He is absolutely worthy of all of me. And so we give it to Him with joy and privilege, knowing that we are partnering with Christ to advance His mission. It's, it's so much fun. It is so much fun. I, if you've ever been able to be in a conversation with someone when a piece clicks, and they move just that one step closer to Christ... It's, it, is, it, is the, it is the best feeling in the world. If you get to be there at the finish line, if you get to reap other people's work, like it is, it, it happens once and the only thing that you want is for, okay, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to, for this to happen again. Because it's our purpose. It's the purpose that God has imprinted on the hearts of his children who have said, Jesus, I'm yours. I accept you as my authority and therefore I accept your mission. This call of sanctification is not a burden, it's a delight. And that's what he's getting at here. He's reminding the people that, hey, you're called to be yoked to Christ, so part of that is choosing to not be yoked to anything unequal. Because Jesus gave everything for you. Is he not worthy of your everything in return? So as we consider these things this week, as we consider where we're going to go after this. I think my clicker died, Luke, if you want to help me out there. This week, let's read 1 Thessalonians 4 and Hebrews 10. Just two chapters like we've been doing. But we're all going to read Hebrews 4 and 1, or 1 Thessalonians 4 and Hebrews 10. And ask yourself, where do you see what we looked at in this passage in the Corinthians? Where do you see it laid out in those chapters? We're going to continue to remember Acts 4.13. We're going to continue to internalize Acts 4.13, to meditate on it, to contemplate it, to chew on it, to allow it to shape our lives. And then just as you reflect, and this is a question only you can answer, I'm going to need to ask myself, and none of you can answer it for me. Is there a part of my life that I have allowed to be unequally yoked? Have I allowed myself to be mentally unevenly yoked? Have I allowed myself to be emotionally unequally yoked, physically unequally yoked, spiritually unequally yoked? Am I allowing things that are worthless, that will not build up, but they will actually lead to ruin? Am I allowing, am I choosing to give them positions of influence and prominence in my life? And if I am, am I willing to do the hard thing and to set them aside to follow Christ? This will be my prayer for this body this week. I would ask that you would be praying this for me this week. But let us be a church that sets everything aside. What does Hebrews 12 say? We set everything that so easily entangles us aside and we run the race with perseverance looking to Christ at the finish line. Let's be that church this week. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for the goodness that you have poured out on us. Thank you for the joy and the privilege to be called Yours, Uh, it is, it's unbelievable, God, that you looked at me such a broken, broken sinner. And you said, yes, I ransomed myself for you so that I can call you brother. I I didn't deserve that. None of us did. We didn't earn that. So, Lord, in, in gratitude for the grace of that, in joy for the blessing of that, God, teach us how to be wholly set apart for you in every aspect of our life, given to you and given to your things. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content.